All right, well, good morning. Did you uh, meet some lifelong friends in those 15 seconds? Hopefully you did. My name is Chris Zarbaugh. I'm the lead pastor here at Kensington Church, Clinton Township, and we are, just like Tracy said, we want to welcome you here to part number five of a five-part series that we're wrapping up today, Five Surprising Things That God Loves. And today, we're talking about the, the surprising thing that God loves is you. Now, I don't know where you sit with that. That may not be necessarily, uh, you know, new news for you today that God loves you, uh, that you believe that. Maybe you've been around church for a while. But hopefully, as we begin to unpack these truths, it should feel just as surprising because of the reality of everything that goes into that. Now, for a lot of us in here, you've been coming, you know, for just maybe even recently over the past several months, and maybe you haven't really digested this concept that God loves us. So let me start off with this idea, and, and everybody participate in this. Raise your hand if this is true. Keep it down if it's not true. Raise your hand if you've ever made a mistake. Raise your hand if you ever made a mistake. Okay, very good. All right. And then raise your hand if you've ever let someone down. Anybody let someone down? Okay, very good. Now, if you didn't raise your hand for either one of those, you're pretty delusional this morning, and I just want to say that this message is definitely for you because... Um, you know, making mistakes and letting people down happen all the time. In fact, for me, it was a pretty big incident, actually a couple incidents that happened just yesterday. On, on Friday, I was given a call by some good friends, Maria and Craig Brown, who said, hey, we have some free tickets for Elf the Musical, It'll, but it starts at 10 a.m., which is kind of early, but my wife were game. My wife and I were game, so we got up, went down there at 10 a.m. to the Fox Theater, saw Elf the Musical. It was pretty good, not as fun as the, you know, funny as the movie, but it was pretty good. So we enjoyed it, and then afterwards, we had reservations at a restaurant called Small Plates, which was actually like an eight-minute walk. Uh, and it's actually located directly across from the Detroit Opera House. And so we walked from the Fox down to, on Broadway, to uh, Small Plates. We were eating lunch, and we were looking across the street, and the Detroit Opera House uh, was plastered. Every single window was filled with Aladdin posters. You know what I'm talking about? Like Aladdin, if you've seen the billboards, it's like Broadway Aladdin, and so everything is just filled with Aladdin, Aladdin, Aladdin. And I knew that Aladdin was going to be at the Detroit Opera House because my daughter had bought tickets several months back in anticipation for this holiday season. And so I looked over at my wife and I said, man, I would love to go see Aladdin. I mean, we just saw of the musical, and we we're like, man, wouldn't it be great if for some reason we checked on StubHub, and maybe somebody, like at the last second, you know, like, you know, because they were about to go in, there was a big crowd in the front and everything else, it was like 2.30 in the afternoon, so I checked on StubHub, couldn't find anything for Aladdin on the same day, and I said, well, it must be sold out, and so finally, uh, we were getting ready to leave, we even saw people leave the restaurant, go across, so we were ready to leave, go back to the car, so we walked across the street, we walked right by the opera house, there were some reindeer there, by the way, we were like, oh, cute little reindeer. And as my wife was petting the reindeer, I decided to just, you know, go for it. And I ran inside the Detroit Opera House, ran up to the window, and I said, do you happen to have any tickets? I said, what time does, does, the, does it start? And he said, like, five minutes. I said, do you have any same-day tickets? And he's like, well, actually, yes, not too many, but just a couple. He's like, you know, they're $85 a piece. And I'm thinking, like, I'm, those of you who know me, that's like, I'm such a cheapskate, right? And so I'm like, $85 is like, it's like $170. I'm like, I can't, oh, gee whiz. And I'm thinking, okay, but wouldn't it be great to see my wife light up? Because we saw Aladdin in New York a couple years ago. And so I said, you know what? I said, let's do it. So I paid the money, couldn't believe I did it, because that's a big deal for me. So then the, she gave me the tickets, and I grabbed them, and I ran outside, and I go, honey, look. And she goes, no. <laughs> 
Wade. I'm like, yes, Wade. She's like, woo, Aladdin. And so we kind of ran in there. And then, uh, you know, I, I showed the tickets to the guy. He ripped them. And then he said, show these tickets to the lady. And I showed the lady. And she says, oh, you're all the way in, like, the, like in the very front. It was like the seventh row, like right on the aisle. And I'm like, this is awesome. And so finally, I was getting ready to take a selfie of a playbill. I said to the gentleman next to me, do you have one of those playbills? And, and he said, no, we don't have playbills. What are you talking about? I said, well, I've never been to a Broadway play without playbills. What are you talking about? And all of a sudden, I started to look around, and everybody was dressed a certain way. They were so formal, and I was like, what's going on? And then right as the lights were dimming, I reached in my pocket, and I finally looked at the writing on it, and it was a three-and-a-half-hour ballet. <laughs> it was the wrong event. It was a ballet, which my wife and I don't necessarily love. And, and no disrespect, it was beautiful and everything else, but... Like, you know, like I'm thinking, what? And so it says the Nutcracker, and I look over, and I swear to you, as the lights were dimming, and they're like, welcome to the Nutcracker, my wife laughed so hard, I swear she was going to pee her pants. <laughs> she goes, she goes, this is one of the funniest things you've ever done. And I was like, well, I'm not leaving. You better believe I'm not leaving. I don't love ballet, but I'm going to clap harder than anybody else, because I'm getting my $170 worth. I'm like, woo, way to go, whatever that was. And so... I just sat there through the whole thing. Well, then, what, to make matters worse, afterwards, I mean, it was just so long. And so we got up, and I said, oh, no, I'm late for my other event. Because Aladdin was shorter. I would have made my other event. But, but this, this, this thing went so long that I actually was due to be in the Detroit Athletic Club. Uh, for, and I'm supposed to pray for dinner at this big shindig that Chris LaBelle, uh, LaBelle Electric, and he was, like, holding this deal, and I was invited and everything else. And so I was like, oh, no, I got, I got to make it there. And so, you know, long story short, I get there. There, and I'm going directly from this event to this event. So I'm wearing something similar that I had on now. I've got like this nasty flannel, you know, shirt with these jeans. Well, is, have, any, have any of you ever been to the Detroit Athletic Club? It's like coat and tie. They make sure. And I didn't, I just wasn't even thinking. I was just late. And so I pull up to it. I valet. I walk in. And the guy says, well, you can't walk in there like that. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, no denim. And I'm like, oh, man. And so he says, well, good night. I said, what do you mean? I drove all this way. What do you mean, good night? And he says, good night. And so finally, I looked at him. I said, how long has this building been in existence? He said, well, over 100 years. I said, do you think that in 100 years, I'm the only homo sapien that has ever made this mistake and approached these doors without, with denim on? I was like, I guarantee you that somewhere in this building, you have a jacket and you have slacks that I could either borrow, rent, or buy. I said, I'm not going to leave here. I'm supposed to pray for that meal. I'm supposed to be in there. I'm supposed to speak. I, 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 I'm not going to leave here until you hook me up with something. He's, he goes, this is literally what he did. He went, follow me. So he takes me inside, and I kid you not, in the coat room, they had like these slacks in this jacket that I put on, and I literally changed, but nothing matched. So I had like a black shirt, black and white shirt with a navy jacket, and so but I'm thinking, hey, I'm in, and then I walked inside, and then as soon as I walked in, Chris LaBelle sees me, he calls me out and says, Chris, come pray, and I stood up in front of everybody, and I looked, and everybody's in like these, you know, really nice suits, and I realized I look like an overdressed hobo. <laughs> at this event. And so I'm making mistakes everywhere. I'm letting people down everywhere. And it was just a heck of a day. And so the reason why I bring that up is because even though that's a lighthearted example, I will bet that you don't have to go too far to probably come up with some examples of mistakes that you've made, maybe even funnier than mine, but maybe chances are more serious than mine. Because today as we talk about if God loves us, the question really boils down to one thing. 
which is the one question that I've pursued with people in conversation more than any other question in the 27 years that I've been a pastor, which is this. How does a person get to heaven? Now, if, if, if you're the majority of people, then you somehow believe that at the end of our lives, if our good outweighs our bad, that's the most important part of the equation. And you may have been raised to believe that going to church versus not going to church also is a big deal. If God were to ask you, why should I let you in heaven, maybe your answer would fall in line with most people's answers, which is you'd say something like, well, I've always tried to blank, or I've never did blank, or I do my best to do blank. Or maybe you're a person in here that believes that all people go to heaven. Uh, the problem is that's not what the Bible says. And not only that, but not, most people don't believe that, that all people go there no matter what. Uh, I talk to Muslims, I talk to Hindus, I talk to Christians, and, and, and most people in all those groups and, and others seem to tie their answer back to a person's individual attempt to live a good life because most people believe that good people go to heaven. The theory is something like this. Uh, you know, there's a good God in a good place, and it's reserved for good people. Well, if that were the truth, and by the way, most people believe that. If that's the truth, then what about people who have done a lot of really bad stuff in the past? What about people who have a lot to make up for, like me, right? Like, like growing up in a rough area, like I, I started thinking about the scales of justice. I'm, th I'm thinking about my own life, and I'm thinking, okay, what are all the good excuse me, the good things that I've done, I started thinking about my chores. I was always a good person that did good chores. I did, uh, in fact, I had four older brothers. Uh, the oldest one did them for a long time, then he passed them to number two. And then for some reason, it went like three for five. And then all of a sudden, it came to me really quick. And, uh, but I always did a really good job with my chores, and I like to think that that you know, deserves a little bit of credit. But then there was that time that I set the garage on fire. Okay. <laughs> And that was a bad day, right? That was a bad day when I set the garage on fire. So then you think about, um, okay, well, how many you know, chores do I have to do to make up for that? Well, uh, how about good grades? So I, I always did my homework. I was a person that really always studied. Uh, I was an A and B student, even in the midst of incredible difficulty. I uh, you know, just always was that way. I was very disciplined. And so you know, I'd like to think that that counts for something, right? <laughs> But then there was that one time, if I look back, when I was eight years old, where I got in an argument with my brother Jimmy over the last donut. And it was one of those long donuts, you know what I'm talking about? The big long ones with the cream filling and chocolate on it. It was really good. And so my brother and I got in an argument, and then he ended up yelling at me, and he threw the donut at me, and I ducked. And I don't know why I ducked, because it was only a donut. But I ducked anyway, and it went behind the refrigerator, hit the wall, and went down behind the fridge. And that donut was gone forever. I was so mad. And so I grabbed the first thing that was near me to throw it at him, and then I paused for a second because what I grabbed was like a you know, three or four pound, very sharp metal ashtray. It was actually a failed metal shop project of my brother Donnie's who tried to make like, the United States so it was all rigid on the ends, but it was a failed project and everything that was failed became an ashtray in our house especially. So uh, I, re I reached over and I grabbed this thing and I went to go throw it and I realized, wait a minute, this has a lot of sharp edges and it's really heavy and it's metal. But then I decided to throw it anyway and I split his head open. So that was uh, a really bad day, right? Because who does that? Who, who pauses and then throws and then splits their brother's head open? And so the question is, when I try to think of good versus bad, my question is, where is the line? 
Because if eternity is at stake, you would think that if the system that God set up is good versus bad, you'd think that maybe we could do with some more specifics, right? Like, what's the definition? Where's the line? What's the passing grade? Is it only 51%? Is it 75%? Is it a C minus? What is it, right? Because most of us, if we, if, I don't think that most of us actually have taken time to think through this theory of good people go to heaven theory, because there's a lot of holes in that theory. And if most of us took time to think about that, we would understand that there are some major problems with this theory. Like, for instance, uh, not only do we not know what good is, but even all of our religious leaders on the planet cannot agree on the subject, right? And so uh, they, they don't line up and not only that, but we don't know what is the measuring stick, the indication of, of the scoring system, how good versus bad works. How about this? Our internal gauges aren't much help either. They don't line up cross-culturally or across the street, for that matter, and not only that, but our definitions of good and bad change over time. And, and what if we die before we get the chance to make up for something really bad? Like, what if we're at a 51% and then all of a sudden we do something really bad and we're like, oh, oh it's going to take a long time, and then all of a sudden we pass away? Well, there's certainly people have probably run into that, right? Now, if all this is true then that makes God an unfair God because if it's an unfair system, then you know, the one who set it up is an unfair God. And, and an unfair God idea is even more confusing and more disturbing than the unfair system in my mind. And then, how about this one? The Bible doesn't offer a way to get to heaven through good deeds. Nowhere in the Bible, not one single place, does it ever say that you can attain, etern obtain eternal life through good deeds. Nowhere. In fact, the Bible actually goes out of its way to say the opposite is true. Even in the Ten Commandments, uh, it, there's, nowhere, there's no promise of heaven, nowhere in sight. It actually says the Ten Commandments were given to show you that you could not keep them and I cannot keep them. And probably one of the biggest problems with this whole theory of good people go to heaven is that when Jesus was alive and on earth, he looked at some of the most dedicated and religious people that existed on the face of the planet and told them that they weren't good enough and at the same time, he told tax collectors, thieves, and prostitutes that the kingdom would gladly welcome them. So let me ask you this question. How is that fair? How is that fair? Is that fair? And so, you know, here, here's, here's the answer to that question. The answer to that question is, the God of Christianity never claims to be fair. Uh, many of you grew up in church, so you know this story, and for a lot of you, it's a brand new story. It's not on the screen, but I'm going to reference it. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus was talking about and describing what the kingdom of heaven was like. And you know what he said? He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who owned a vineyard, like a great property, and he went out one by one, and he, and he hired people to work in the vineyard all day, and, and he promised them a certain wage. And he said, and, then, and, and he even hired people up until the last hour before quitting time. And so when everybody decided to, you know, when the whistle blew and it was time to be done, everybody got in line. And then the person who only worked one hour, he gave a full day's wage to. He paid him for the whole day. And then when it came all the way down to the end of the line, the guy who worked the entire day expected to get more. But he ended up getting the agreed upon wage. And so he said to the vineyard owner, you have treated me unfairly because you paid the guy who only worked an hour the same rate that you paid me, and I've worked all day. And so the vineyard, the guy who owned the vineyard responded by saying this. It's actually not unfair because you received exactly what we agreed upon. That is not unfair to you. He said, now what you're angry about is the fact that I decided to be generous, extra generous to somebody else 
And then, then the response was, what business is it of yours if I decide to be generous to him or her, whatever it was? I'm actually paraphrasing all of that. But the heart of that parable is exactly that. In other words, the kingdom of God is run by a God who doesn't even claim to be fair. In fact, he is incredibly unfair. He's beyond fair. He doesn't pretend to be fair because he's fair to our advantage. The Bible teaches that God decides to not give us exactly what we deserve. And you know what that's called? That's called mercy. But the Bible also says that God decides to give us exactly what we don't deserve, which is God's grace. So mercy that spares us and grace that favors us. You see, God does not claim to be fair. Is Christianity fair? The answer is absolutely not. But then again, if you took the Bible seriously, the very last thing that you would want is for God to be fair. Because the Bible says that our, our sin separates us from God, that actually our sin, the payment for sin is death, you know, and, and, and that somebody needed to come and solve that sin problem. And you and I think that maybe this is the answer to solve the sin problem, you know, the, the good versus the bad. There's, there's three truths for today. Here's the first one. You want to write these down. Number one, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. Those who have done what's bad and, and, and on the receiving end of God. The Bible goes out of its way. The Apostle Paul, Jesus Christ, everybody writing in the New Testament goes out of their way to explicitly explain very clearly with crystal clarity that this is a brand new truth. Since Jesus Christ came down on the earth, he died on a cross, he was buried, and then he rose from the grave. And he says that he did all of this to pay for your sins and mine. And back in the first century, that was a brand new thing. So here's the way that Paul writes about it. And uh, look at Romans chapter 3, verse number 21. He starts off by saying, but now. But now means this is a brand new truth for the people who are hearing it for the first time in the first century. But now a righteousness, and that word righteousness, by the way, could be translated into a right standing with God. You know what it is to have a right standing with God, to have nothing in between you? So he says, but now a righteousness, a right standing with God, then he says, from God. This righteousness comes from God. The right standing with God actually comes from God, not from you. And then he says, apart from the law, apart from all the commandments of the Old Testament, he says, it has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So it's apart from obeying all the commandments in the Old Testament, but then he's saying, but the Old Testament actually points to and supports and predicts what I'm about to tell you as well. So he's leveraging the Old Testament in both ways. He says, this righteousness, this right standing from God, uh, with God, from God, comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned and fall short. Because the standard for good versus bad is perfection. The standard for getting into heaven by our good deeds is absolute perfection. And if you've made one mistake, if you've raised your hand at the beginning of the service, that's what the Bible is saying, for all have sinned, we've all lied, we're liars, we're all, we've all sinned, we're sinners, and we fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified freely. Justified means just as if I have never sinned. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption or the buying back or the purchasing 
that came by Christ Jesus, and he's putting Christ before Jesus again. Whenever that happens, he's reminding us of the redemptive work of the Messiah or the Savior of the world. And he says God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. You see, that's brand new news for you today. Don't, don't walk in through the doors. Don't come to Kensington. And based on your church background that you had growing up, you, you, you were raised like me. A lot of you were. And you were raised to believe that you had to go to church in order to feel good about going to church. Right? Are you with me on that? Like you had to check the box. You had to jump through hoops. My favorite comment that people make to me when they come over to Kensington and they went to church as a traditional church as a, as a child, they come to Kensington and they, they say, I got a question. Does, you know, does Kensington count? Does coming to Kensington count? Like, because I know that I have to, you know, check the box, right? So then people double dip for a while, you know, because they, they want to make sure it counts. Listen, and that's fine. If you double dip, I'm all, I'm all for double dipping. It's great. So... Not only do we discover that good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people do, but here's the second truth, is that God's love and forgiveness is for those who feel they don't deserve it. In other words, that the message of the love of God is not for people who are in church. It's actually the opposite is true, right? And if you walk in through the doors thinking like, hey, uh, church belongs to the people who are members here, uh, this is for them. God approves of them. They're the church people. They're the good people of the world. The opposite is true, that, that God wants every person to know that he loves them radically and unconditionally, especially those who don't feel they deserve it, which, by the way, is every one of us, uh, the, you know, theologically. Look what it says in um, Luke chapter number five. But the Pharisees, the religious keepers of the law, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to Jesus' disciples. And he said, or they said, why do you eat and drink with prostitutes and sinners? You know, shame, shame, you're eating with, with people who are sinners. And then Jesus answered them, and I love this phrase, it is not the healthy <clears throat> who need a doctor, but the sick. And I have, and these words not come, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I'm not here for church people. I'm not here for the found. I'm here for the lost, which is why we build our mission statement on Luke 15, which is not on the screen, which basically talks about how Jesus said, if one of you has 100 sheep and one of them wanders away, which one of you would not leave 99 who are already found to go find the one that is lost? Jesus said he has come for the ones who are sick, who need a doctor, not for the healthy. And that is his mission. So please understand that even though that Jesus is referring to sinners uh, being like, you know, the people he's eating, dinners, eating dinner with, uh, the truth of this statement bleeds over to you and me. So who are the sinners in this, in this passage? You and me. We are. We're the ones that Jesus has come for. We're the ones who are on the receiving end of God's love and his message, regardless of how you stack up in your own mind. And then here's the third truth, and it's this. We will always do everything we can to reach everyone we can, right? And by the way, that is our mission as a church. I just want to announce to you, if you haven't figured it out already, we will do everything short of sin to make sure that every person is able to hear for the first time or the first time in a long time that God loves them radically, 
I want to show you this video. It's one of the greatest examples of, a, uh, of, of this statement that we could make. This is from Kenya. This is one of our global partners. And uh, we partner with the Pokot people in the northwestern region of Kenya. And we have dedicated ourselves to them in a lot of ways. But one of the primary ways is to drill water for clean, you know, drill wells for clean water, to provide clean water for all one million plus people in the Pokot region. And, and by the way, the end game is to make sure that we provide for them physically so that they could hear that God loves them. It's our, it's our driving mission in everything we do. This is an unbelievable video. Take a minute, sit back and watch this. You know, so watching that again, you know, takes me back to the very first time that I waded out into one of those pools of water with goats and cows and children drinking and thinking of the the runny noses and the, the mucus around children's eyes and yeah there was joy but there was sickness everywhere and seeing again that God has allowed us to be a part of changing hundreds of thousands of people's lives by giving them health like clearing up their you know their nasal passages to not to not cough just that woman thinking she's not going to need to cough anymore she's going to live maybe maybe double her lifespan maybe keep all of her children alive and that all of that then leads in to a people group of over a million to be open to Jesus Christ and his love so that physical water leads to people engaging with the living water of Jesus Christ. And we get to be a part of that. Thirteen of us got to travel to Kenya at the end of July to visit with the Pokot. One of the villages that we traveled to, our experience was to actually walk the path that they walk to get water every day. When we got to the village, we met at one of the homesteads, which would be where some of the families live. We told them what we were there to do. We were there to go on this walk with them to see what it's like to walk to the water, see the water, fill the water jugs and carry them back. The expression on their face when they were trying to understand, well, why would you want to do that with us? That just didn't really make a lot of sense. 
but they were open to it. They said, if you want to do this, okay. So they asked each of us to pick a partner. So there were these women standing there with their jugs, and we all just kind of walked up to find the woman that we were going to walk with. So then we started on our journey. And we walk down into this reservoir, and I'm looking at this water, and I'm thinking, okay, that's, that's really dirty. Certainly wouldn't swim in it, and I wouldn't want to drink it. And I start putting my jug down, and I'm not doing it right, obviously. There's a way to do this, and I don't know how to do it, but she starts doing it just to make sure that it gets in right, and everyone's kind of has their jugs, and we're standing there with our ladies, and now it's time to walk. I couldn't imagine doing this every day. She does it with the baby on her back and this on top of her head. I will be honest with you, this was less than a mile that we walked. I felt like we walked five miles. It was hot. It was heavy. And knowing that they do this day in and day out, and during the drought season, when this reservoir is dried up, they have to walk 10 miles one way to get to the next water source. More than any culture that's ever existed, we're people that observe other people's problems from a distance. And eventually, we become almost immune to the suffering of other people. But God has put us in a situation not just among the Pocah, but with many other peoples, that we step in and all of a sudden we realize, yeah, these people that seem so strange or other than us are exactly like us. They have the same longings for their families and their children and to live. And now we're not disconnected. We're not just some distance place. Now we're brothers and sisters and we're in it together forever. So the, the process for a community to get a well includes initial meetings with them to understand, you know, what's going on in their community, how far they're walking, and, and do an assessment. There is also the process of trying to figure out where is the water. We have geologists that look and try and figure out where we're going to drill. Through the whole process, the Pocock community is brought in as part of it. They, they really want to make sure that they're taking ownership of the entire process. Once that community now has um, the location of where the well is going to be and the pathways to get there, the rig is brought out. The rig starts drilling. Um, this could take multiple days. It really just depends on the terrain. It depends on how far they have to drill to reach that water. But when it starts getting there, they can get to a point where they kind of know when they're going to hit that water. And that's when the community starts to come together and to try and be a part of that experience of hitting that water. like we knew something big was happening but when that water hit and it sprayed everywhere <laughs> I've never seen anything so amazing it's like their life was changing right here and now these kids on their backs have a future because of this 
later they told me what they were chanting and they were chanting praises to the people around here today and to God and that just warmed my heart that they know Jesus and they know that that's where this is coming from. What's important for everyone to understand is the difference that we're making at Kensington, the difference that the Hope Water Project is making in lives. When you think about the 128 wells that have been dug since we started this project, the over 250,000 people that have access to clean water, each one of them has a face, each one of them has a family, each one of them has a future, because of what Kensington and Hope Water Project are doing. This explosion of water is gonna create an explosion of change. And it's gonna be a, a physical transformation. Their children aren't gonna die anymore. They're gonna live to adulthood. Schools are gonna come. There's gonna be a, a, a church that meets there every week, multiple times a week. People are going to come to Christ. Those kids right now that never had an anticipation of even going to middle school are going to go to high school and some of them are going to college and even graduate school from that community. This is going to change everything. And at the center of it is Jesus Christ, Jesus moving and changing people. And they're, and they're not strangers. Now you've seen it. You know they, that they belong to us. We're in this forever. In, right into eternity. And so, when you make a, a special year-end Christmas gift to Kensington, you're not just a, a part of a physical transformation of a people. You're a part of them being transformed spiritually forever. They have now found hope, not only for this life, but for the life to come. They are finding a purpose. They're seeing uh, Jesus Christ moving them. And what's amazing is they're now moving out to other tribal groups around the, the world. So when you make your gift, Jesus is pouring through you and you're a part of this. And I want to thank you for stepping into this with me once again. It's amazing, isn't it? And I don't know about you, but I'm just, I'm sitting backstage watching that on the monitor. I'm just bawling like a baby because I'm like, that is amazing. And uh, I've been to Kenya. If you if ever have a chance, if you ever get a chance to go over and see, especially if they're drilling a well, it's unbelievable. I just want to just kind of champion what Steve said. Thank you. Uh, every dollar you give, it goes toward things like that. So many things. But again, I love how Steve said it. He said in the, in the video that when we drill a well, it's going to provide, obviously, the physical, but it's going to turn into the spiritual. People are going to come. We're going to build churches. And again, the driving force behind every dollar we give, every effort that we put forth, every, you know, 
ministry that is formed, every outreach that we do is, is designed so that we can make sure that everybody knows that God loves them. Because everything we, uh, we will always do everything we can to reach everyone we can. Let me just pause here, too, and say this is a really good time for me to try to uh, squeeze in here the mission behind our Christmas event. Uh, for many of you, you're brand new. In fact, I can't even tell you the number of people, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people have been coming to this particular location, our church, just, just in the last few months. And so you've never been to a Kensington Christmas. I don't know if you know uh, what kind of mission is attached to a Kensington Christmas. We put on a big show, and it is partly show, right, uh, that we are asking you to invite people with you. So in other words, let me say it this way. If you think that we're putting on our Christmas service just for you, you couldn't be more mistaken. We actually are putting it on for you and your friends. So my challenge, you're going to hear me say to everybody, is that like our goal would be for you to fill a row, that you would just download your Kensington free tickets and say, like, this is the service I'm going to choose, you know, and make sure you do that sooner rather than later because services will fill up. And then you download those free tickets, and then you'll say, I'm going to invite these, you know, maybe it's five people in a family or maybe it's ten people or maybe it's multiple services. But I'm telling you, that is the big thing around here. And we, and we do it not for the sake of saying, oh, look, we have... So many people, it's not that. We don't care about that. Here's what we care about. Oh, look, did you see how many people heard that God loves them? Right? That's the goal. That is the end game. We, we do it for the sole reason that, that everybody, and by the way, can I just say this too? If you're new, not only do I want you to ramp up and be excited about bringing people, but please understand that upwards of almost 90% of all people will come to a Christmas service if they're invited personally. And so another Sunday during the course of the year is different. But for a holiday service at Christmas and Easter, almost 90% of all people who get invited will come. And so if you've given up hope in inviting somebody, try Christmas services and, and be on mission with us, okay? So uh, just go ahead and say this, that not, not only is this our mission, but it was the Apostle Paul's mission. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter number 9. Paul says this, Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone. And what he's saying is he's about to unpack this idea of this metaphor saying, hey, I don't, I'm, 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 I'm not a slave to anybody, but I am a servant, almost like a slave to everyone. And he's about to explain why. He said, well, the motivation is to win as many possible. And to win meaning that, that they would hear about God's love and receive it. So he says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. Because at that time, you know, the Jewish and the Gentile audience were, audiences were there. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. And he was talking about the religious leaders because Paul was a Pharisee. He was also a Jew, by the way. Paul, Paul was a Jewish man, and he was a Pharisee. And he says, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. He's referring to Gentiles. Though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. That was Paul's mission. He was called to the Gentiles, or anybody who is not Jewish. So Paul's breaking down all three categories, religious leaders, people with a Jewish history, people who have a Gentile history and no history with God. He, became, he becomes like all those people. He says, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. And then he makes the statement, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Paul says the same thing that we still say today. We will do everything we can 
to, to, to uh, make sure that we can save everyone we can or to reach everyone we can. And by the, word, by the way, that word save in the scripture, when it says be saved, I know that's a real churchy word, but you know how that literally translates in the Greek? It means to be rescued. And so here's my question for you. Maybe today is your day to respond. Maybe you've been coming to church for a while and you don't really understand the whole getting to heaven thing or God's love thing. Maybe you had some major you know, objections, kind of like, hey, you know, there's no way that God's love is for me because I'm this guy and this guy you know, doesn't deserve anything. Whatever it is, I'm just saying today may be your day to respond because I'm about to uncover uh, just two things and the two, ca- well, two categories of things, which is, is the answer to these two questions. Number one, what does a person need to know to get to heaven? And then what does a person need to do to get to heaven? Hey, thanks for the message, Chris. God loves me. What do I need to know and what do I need to do? Uh, those two categories are answered in one single verse. The most popular verse in all the Bible, by the way, which is John chapter 3, verse 16, which reads this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the reason why those four words are bolded is because the first two words are the only things you need to know to get to heaven, and the second two words are the only things that you need to do to get to heaven. The only thing you need to know is that God loved and God gave. That's it. The only thing you need to know is that God loved the world, which includes you, and that God gave his son. And that's it. God, God loved and God gave. And to understand that he gave his son to die on a cross to solve the sin problem because you yourself can't solve your own sin problem. So what do you need to know? I mean, you know, were there dinosaurs on the ark? You know, did Adam and Eve have the belly button? Those are great questions, but you don't need to know those things to get to heaven, right? You just need to know two things. God loved and God gave. The two things you need to understand to do is that you just have to believe, and then when you believe, you have. You just believe, and then when you believe, you have. The Bible says that, with, you know, that, that with, with your heart you make the confession. You know, if you shall confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be rescued. You shall be saved. To believe in your heart with childlike faith, the Bible says. And, and I know that for some people that may be hard to understand because uh, the rest of our lives are, work, operate like this. When you go to work, it's good and bad or reward and punished. When you go to school, when you go home, I mean, every other arena in our lives is based on good and bad rewarding and punishment and responsibility and and everything else. But with God, he says the opposite is true, that it's Jesus plus nothing. And that's it. That's the equation. Jesus plus nothing. And so if you're here today and maybe you have had questions about that, maybe you, you know, just have never really quite resolved the fact that you know, like, uh, I, don't, I don't really know for sure if I'm going to go to heaven when I die. I, I think I know. I kind of know, but I don't know quite for sure. I'd like to take just an opportunity to just solidify this thing and get this thing taken care of once and for all. And with childlike faith, pray a prayer together. So I would like to invite every single person to close their eyes and bow their head just for a minute. If you would go ahead and close your eyes, bow your head. Nobody looking around. I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer And I don't want you to pray it out loud. I would like you to pray it silently in your heart. And you would just say to yourself just something like this. And if you want to 
you know, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the very first time, then again, not out loud, but just to yourself, pray something like this. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I know that I am a sinner. Father, I know I cannot get to heaven by myself or by my good deeds. Jesus, thank you for dying on a cross for me. Thank you for paying for my sins. Lord, as best as I know how, I am, I am asking you to come into my life. I'm putting my faith and my trust in you. Jesus, thank you for loving me. And I will try my very best to put you first in everything I say and do. In Jesus' name. Do me a favor. Keep your head bowed. Keep your eyes closed just for a second, please. Nobody looking except for me. I just want to ask a simple question. If you prayed that prayer for the very first time and you meant it, would you do me a favor? Would you lift up your hand and put it right back down just so I could see? Put it up and put it right back down. Yeah, it's maybe, maybe close to 100 of you. And whether you're in this room or you're listening online, you have to believe something. That God says, if we are faithful to do our part, he's faithful to do his. And our part is just believing and trusting him with childlike faith. And the Bible says, yeah, that that, that is enough. The Bible actually says that when one person comes to know God, the angels rejoice in heaven. And when the angels rejoice in heaven at this very moment, it's, it's unbelievable to think that for so many of us, we just crossed the line of faith for the very first time. I want to pray for everybody in here. Let's pray one last time. Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for these truths. I pray, God, that even though this may have been a surprising truth to some in here, God, that we would receive it, that we would believe it, that we would live in it, that, Father, that we would be forever grateful for it. God, that you love us, that you see the depths of our heart and you love us the same, that you see our brokenness, you see our mistakes, you see all the issues that we deal with, the things that we beat ourselves up over and and, and the things that people don't forgive us for. God, you see all of it, all of our insecurities, all of our doubts. And God, you love us unconditionally. You love us fully. You love us totally. So God, thank you for that this morning. I pray it may be a life changer, a game changer for us to live in that truth. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. We're going to receive our offering at this time as our ushers are coming down. just want to say, if you're here and you're visiting for the very first time, uh, you don't have to worry about giving. You can give if you'd like. Uh, If you're going to give a year-end Christmas gift, this would be your time to do so, or you can do it online. Uh, There's so many ways to give online. Uh, You can do it through texting. You can do it through our app, through our website. Most people, in fact, don't give in the auditorium. But we're always careful to say as the offering is passing that if if you're a part of Kensington, um, thank you for trusting God's word and what it says about we're supposed to give back to what he's blessed us with. That's an important part of our faith. It's really important. But at the same time, we're always careful to say thank you for trusting us and our leadership and what we feel like God has called us to. So thank you all around, okay? And as that's passing, I just want to uh, set up this next moment with you by saying there's a very famous song that I heard as a kid. Um, in fact, if you grew up in church, you've heard it. Kids sing it all the time. It's Jesus loves me, this I know. What's the next line? My 
And you know what's so funny is even though that children sing that, it is such a profound truth. And so not only are we going to sing that, but also we approached adults in this next video, and we asked them to talk about it and the impact that it's made in their lives. So we invite you to sing along with us if you know it. 